All right, good morning. We doing all right? Yeah, today's the best day of the year. For the preacher, today is uh, Christmas for the six-year-old. It is so awesome. I love Easter. Such a big day. Uh, a year ago today, uh, James Furlow and I, he was, he was here first service, I don't know. Uh, we woke up in a, uh, in a tent house in the middle of the jungle under a mosquito net and uh, we preached for a bunch of people who you could only get to by airplane in the jungles of Indonesia. I preached a 10-minute sermon, and uh, it was translated four times. Literally, I spoke, someone else spoke who knew that language, and then they translated it, they translated they translated So it was 45 minutes. Um, it was a good time. So uh, today I will be speaking at least for a couple hours or two, but... Um, I, I just want to welcome you and say, again, today is the greatest day for the Christian. Um, it doesn't get any better than today. It's, yeah, sure. Um, so, so either today, like I said, is, is the best day in the history of the world, or we are the most to be pitied. Uh, either Jesus rose from the dead and he's God, or we are the laughingstock of the universe. It's kind of a weird, there's no real in-between. It's either he's God or he's not at all and we shouldn't be here. right? If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you, you really should leave right now. There's no, you have no business being here in here. Uh, go grill a steak, go on a hike, get some good family time. But don't stay here. It really doesn't make any sense to be here at all. But my hope uh, over the next 20 minutes is to give you really unprecedented hope as to why today is the greatest day in the history of the world. Um, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. It's such an important day for the believer. It's such an important day. So I want to welcome you. Uh, I want to, today I want to ask three questions. I, I hope that these questions are suitable for someone who has committed their lives and saying, I'm following Jesus. I hope this question is profitable for someone who's not quite sure what they believe, and I hope this is profitable for someone who is sure that they have not committed their lives to following Jesus. Um, ultimately, these three questions, um, I think, get at the heart of what it means um, to just be uh, someone who, who is seeking truth in a world where there's a lot of different options out there. Um, I'm going to do this by going through our text from today, which is from 1 John. Uh, we've kind of been working through the book 1 John, and I didn't want to take a break from it. It's Easter. I figured we'd just plow right through. The Word of God is authoritative, and I'm just going to keep going. So I'm going to ask you this. I'm going to ask you, would you stand with me? We're going to read from 1 John together. And when I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord. And you're going to say, thanks be to God. So let's practice. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here are the words uh, written by one of Jesus' closest friends to a church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. He, read, he writes this, And by now we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you stay standing as we pray? Father, um, I thank you for the opportunity to open up your word today. 
God, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to ask big questions, to be able to ask hard questions in a, a time and a century that's far removed from uh, the activities of this text. But God, I, I truly believe that you are alive and that you are moving today. And Lord, that through um, the seeking out of truth, Lord, I pray that we would come face to face with the reality of the risen Jesus. Lord, if there are any of us in here this morning who have come, who have kind of set our faces to not follow you, God, I pray that this morning we would just get a better glimpse of who you are, that you would be causing us to follow you. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you died for our sin and that you rose again. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. You may go ahead and take a seat. Um, As I mentioned, these words were written by John. Uh, John was one of Jesus' closest apostles. He was perhaps Jesus' absolute best friend. There's multiple times where John is referred to as uh, the one whom Jesus loved. So these are coming from the very words of Jesus' closest friend. It was written about 60 years after Jesus left the earth, and it was written to a church in Ephesus, again, modern-day Turkey. In the beginning of this book, one of the questions that John keeps addressing is this idea of how do we know God? How how does anyone come to the reality and the the understanding of who God is and what God is like? What is his character? Is he a God who created? Is he a God worth following? What is God like? See, at the end of the first century, there were multiple competing worldviews in the church. And and it caused a lot of faction to the point where uh, a number of people left the church thinking that they had a new and better understanding of who God was. They thought, you know what, we're going to leave kind of these old archaic views of God. We're going to leave the church and we have this new form of enlightenment. Later on, this, uh, this new idea of thinking was called Gnosticism. But in the first century, it wasn't quite labeled that just yet. But it's in this type of thinking that John starts to write to the church. And he opens up here in chapter 2, and he says this in verse 3. He says, By this we may know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John tells us two things in these sentences. Uh, The first thing he tells us is that you either know God... Uh, according to John. And if you know God, you're going to follow him. And again, according to John, if you know him and follow him, then you do have a correct worldview. You understand the true, correct God. The other reality is if you say that you know God, but you don't follow him, then you show that you don't know him, showing that you do not have a correct worldview. So my first question out of kind of this uh, framework of, of John addressing that there is one true God is asking ourselves the question here today, is it reasonable to believe that there is one true God? Is this a reasonable thing to believe 2,000 years later uh, for the modern man, the modern thinker? Is it reasonable to believe that there is one true God? I want to try to answer this in two different ways. One is by looking at what John's experience was and what John would say. And the other is, uh, a couple thousand years later, how we as the modern man would look at a question like this. So if someone was to ask John this question, is it reasonable to believe that there is one true God? How would John respond? My guess is that if someone was to ask John that, he would say something to this effect. He would say, well, um, I was Jesus' best friend. Um, I lived with him for three years. I watched him uh, turn water into wine. I watched him raise um, Lazarus from the dead. I watched him heal a crippled man who was crippled for 38 years. I watched him walk on water. I watched him heal a blind man. I also watched him nailed to a cross. 
I watched as they stretched his body out. I watched as they took a nail to his hand, to his feet. I watched as they hung a sign above him saying, King of the Jews. I watched him as they hoisted the cross up, and I watched him as they offered him sour wine. I watched him as they mocked him. I was there. I saw it. I imagine he also said something to the effect of, I watched him die. I watched as the soldiers grabbed the spear and shoved it in his side and blood and water poured out. I watched him say, it is finished. And then I would also imagine he would say something like, I was with Peter a couple days later when we ran to the tomb, hearing it was empty, and I saw the tomb myself. I saw that it was empty. And I, for the next couple weeks, saw Jesus face to face. I ate with him many times. He stayed at my house many times. He, he explained to me again and again how through the old, whole Old Testament, all these prophecies about Messiah were fulfilled in him. I imagine that's what John would have said. So I don't think for John it would have been a big jump for him to say, I believe that he truly was God. But what about us? Right? I mean, we're pretty far removed from that. None of us saw Jesus raised from the dead. None of us saw Jesus heal a blind man. None of us saw Jesus heal Lazarus. We weren't there. We didn't see his hands. We didn't see his feet. How would we believe that something like this even happened? Right? It's hard to believe in a historical event. How is that proven? Right? I've talked to a number of people, and I've said, if Jesus did really raise from the dead, would you believe that he is God? And the typical answer is, well, yeah, if, if he did, if you could prove that he raised from the dead, I would believe he is God. But how do you prove a historical event? At what point is a historical event proven? It's very difficult to prove something that happened uh, a number of years ago, let alone 2000, let alone yesterday. I mean, follow me for just a minute. Let's pretend this didn't really happen, but let's pretend yesterday Let's pretend that this happened, that I'm out mowing my lawn, and I see an eagle flying over. And this eagle circles around a couple times and then swoops in and grabs the squirrel out of my backyard. Like, if that actually happened, and I told you I saw this event happen, would you believe me? Would you believe me? Sure. Yeah, most of you would. If you know me, most of you would. I don't know. You, you really have no reason not to believe me. That's, that's a fairly reasonable thing to believe. Um, we don't see a lot of bald eagles out here, but perhaps, you know, okay. Um, Josh seems like he's somewhat of a reliable guy. You know, okay, sure. But what if it was a lot more of a miraculous story? Uh, something that doesn't happen every day. What if I'm out mowing my lawn and I see a penguin flying <laughs> through the sky? And this penguin swoops in, grabs that same squirrel, and, and, you know, jumps up in the spruce tree next to me and starts eating the squirrel. Would you believe me? But what if it actually happened? Like, what if I actually saw that? Right, the first thing you're going to do is you're probably call up the elders. Hey, Pastor Josh, you know, I'm more on the line. You know, like, I don't know. I'm a little concerned about that. But if it actually happened, if it was miraculous, out of the norm, how would I prove to you a historical event if you weren't there? When I was a video, I mean, let's be honest. If you saw, if you went on YouTube today and you saw a penguin flying, swooping up a squirrel on the video, are you going to believe it because it's on YouTube? No way. You're going to go edit like that. That didn't happen, right? So, how do you prove a historical event? How how would you prove that Jesus really did raise from the dead? I mean, the best possible evidence is corroborated eyewitnesses, right? You've got, what if, what if 500 people in Corvallis saw that same penguin do the same thing? And you'd probably believe it. Like if he was over at Kevin's house, oh man, the mighty penguin, you know, if he was over at Don's house, he's over at whoever's house. 
Like, it would be a little bit more believable, but again, going back to first century, how do you believe that Jesus really rose from the dead if you weren't there? It's hard to prove a historical event. So for the modern mind, is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is God? Is it reasonable to believe that there is one true God? Again, I could point to the eyewitness testimony of a lot of different people. I could point to millions of people, and I could say, look at this woman's life. Her life has been radically changed by giving her life to Christ. Look at this person, miracle after miracle. I mean, I've heard stories. I've known people who, who you know, limbs literally stretching, uh, cancer instantly gone, right? Lives just radically changed. But to the modern mind, most people are going to say, you know, That might have been someone else's experience, but it doesn't carry a lot of weight if I didn't personally experience that. I mean, that's just how we think. Usually, the the experience of someone else doesn't give us enough weight to really uh, carry any credibility. So what about us today? Um, There are a lot of reasons, there are a lot of different ways that I could point to the reliability of the existence of a God, but I want to point to one that I think for me carries a huge amount of weight. Um, I think it resonates to the Christian and non-Christian alike. Um, and, and it is the following. If there is no God, then ultimately your life does not matter at all. Intrinsically, there is no right. There is no wrong. There is absolutely no such thing as a moral obligation. If, God, if, there, is a, if there isn't a God who exists who created the world, who's, who's subjugated the world to a certain moral, ethical standard, if that did not exist, if, God, if that God doesn't exist, then there is no right, there is no wrong. Do whatever you want. In the end, it doesn't matter. Right? Ultimately, um, currently, we're being told that the universe is going to eventually die in one of two ways. Um, if the universe continues to expand at the rate it expands, eventually stars are going to burn out, and we are going to die in what is called a heat death. Right? And if that doesn't happen, cosmologists are saying that dark energy is going to take over the world. The space-time continuum will eventually uh, wipe away gravity and what is called the big rip will occur and everything will cease to exist. And if that happens, and if there is no God, then all of this will be literally for nothing. So take what you want, stamp out the weak, further your own gene pool, doesn't matter. But here's the problem. None of us live that way. None of us actually live believing that nothing we do matters. See, on, on the way to work this morning, I was listening to 1240 Joe Radio. Um, shout out to Jason. Uh, ESPN, doing something rather holy on my way to Easter. And uh, I did it. Was anyone, anyone else catch uh, Joe Radio at about like 6.15 this morning? No? Well, that's all right. Um, so I'm, I'm driving to church about six minutes. And uh, there's an interview of a Holocaust survivor this morning. It was actually really surprising uh, hearing this on the way to work. I was like, is this the Christian radio station? What's going on here? Um, And this guy, he he was 13 years old, and he was describing his experience as a survivor. And he talked about this progression of what it was like to go from being a citizen to then what he called a non-citizen to what he called a non-human. He talked about what it was like as a 13-year-old reading a sign that says, no dogs and no Jews allowed. He talked about what it was like going to the swimming pool, his neighborhood swimming pool that he used to go to all the time as a kid, only to hear the, the lifeguards tell him, Jews are no longer allowed. He talked a little bit about what it was like eight months in Auschwitz. 
If there is no God, none of that is wrong. If there's no God, it's just an event. There's no right, there's no wrong. What happened in this man's life was not intrinsically evil. The only way that you can point to something of that nature and say that is wrong is if there is a God who exists who prescribes these moral values saying, out of my nature there is right and there is wrong. And see, the thing is, we all live that way. We all live believing in things like honor and valor and love. But if God doesn't exist, all those things are just chemical reactions in your brain. It doesn't matter. But I don't think anyone lives that way. Therefore, I think it's far more reasonable to believe that a God exists. Question number two, if a God exists, which God are you following? Um, I want to say this. I'm I'm not going to make the whole argument, but it's a true statement. I'll share a little bit. Every single one of us in this room follows a God. And that might be surprising to some of you to hear that. And what I mean by that is every one of us in this room follows a certain set of beliefs, a certain set of convictions that you believe if humanity ordered and operated itself in this way, humans would best thrive. Whether you actually follow out your beliefs or not, everyone has that conviction. Everyone has this idea that, hey, if the world lived like X, things would be good. If the world lived like Y, things would be good. Everyone has a world view. Therefore, everyone has made up a God in their mind. John talks about this in his text here. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He's basically saying you can't just say, um, this is who God is, I'm going to follow him. You can't just make that up on your mind. That's, that's completely inconsistent. Because what happens when your worldview falls apart, all you're left holding on to is a broken, carven image of a God in your hand that doesn't last the stand of anything. You can't just make it up. But we do this all the time. One of the most um, popular uh, kind of worldviews that I see today is kind of this, this kind of American idea um, that says human beings thrive. Uh, we, are, we are best lived when we are free to ultimately pursue anything we want as long as we don't hurt anyone. Right? You've heard that before? That's kind of the, the God of individual self, of, of uh, absolute autonomy. You've got other worldviews out there that will say something to the effect of, well, it's not the individual that's most important, it's the community. So you need to sacrifice your own personal desires for the betterment of the community. And there are a lot of worldviews. Again, you've got your classic Muslim, Christian, Jew, um, all believing a certain orthodox practice that if we do this, we will be best served. And John's saying, you've got to know the one true God. You can't just make something up. We make up these ideas all the time. Um, again, probably the most common worldview I see today is something like this. We see it very much in my generation. I'll speak to my generation and to those a little bit below me. Um, my highest aim is to be true to myself. Right? We see this all over. Find your inner hero. Uh, the highest aim in life is to be someone who's all about adventure, who's all about discovery, who's all about forging my own path. Right? Forget anyone telling me what to do. I'm going to let go of anyone who's trying to shape me into something, and I am going to discover the inner hero in me. Does this sound familiar? We, we read about this everywhere. Every advertising campaign screams this right now. Heaven is seen as a new horizon every day. 
Heaven is seen as a new adventure, and hell is literally seen as being stuck as a Walmart bag boy stuck in burns with no hope of escape. And that is what hell is seen as these days. Heaven is so much different. I'm going to show you a picture of uh, this new worldview that I see everywhere. Um, This is a box. There was a pair of rubber boots in this box. Um, Someone gave this to my wife for... Uh, as a gift, a very nice gift. Um, and on this box is a promoted worldview. And I think it's fabulous. I see it all over the place. And by fabulous, I mean hilarious. Um, and it says this. It says, Hunter was born out of the British obsession to unearth something new. Forged by the desire to discover the spirit of Hunter was created. We take the path that others dare not take. Always innovating, always evolving what it means to be British. We pursue a simple, perfect function. Since 1856, we've equipped the people who want to find their own path. If you're born a pioneer, you're always living in an era of discovery. And so you too, you can get some rubber boots. And you can be the person who is the most mighty of all explorers. You can find your own path. And you can be an individual unlike any other. Just escape the mundane. Escape boredom and find something new. But what happens when monotony settles in? Right? What happens when, like, that fix of the next great vacation just doesn't quite do it for you anymore? Or what happens when you're looking on Facebook and all your friends get that vacation all the time and you don't? Or what happens when you finally get on that vacation and you're on the white sand beach and the water's blue, it's beautiful, and then all you see are these stupid sand fleas that just keep jumping all over your legs. All right? You laugh because you've been there. Or when you're finally in that mountain escape, and you've got the two pine trees, and you set up your sweet eco hammock, and there's the alpine lake, and you're there. But then what's buzzing all around you? Mosquitoes. Right? Perpetually. What happens when monotony settles in? If the God you're following is made up by being true to yourself, by escaping the mundane, then when mundane settles in, when your hope of being this unique ultimate explorer who's the only person who's ever worn this pair of boots, when that reality settles in, when your worldview crashes, you're left holding on to nothing. The reality is we all follow a God, every one of us. Whether you want to say it with your mouth or not, every one of us follow a God. So my last question is this, are you following Jesus? I want to talk to the Christian and to someone who's not quite sure where they are. Um, I want to talk to us a little bit individually here. So I want to talk to the Christian first. To the Christian, I want to say, are you still following Jesus? Okay, we read this in verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. See, it's really easy to say, I, I know God. It's really easy to say. It's really easy to say, oh yeah, I follow Jesus. But John lays out the litmus test. This is the only way to know that you actually know and are in God is if you really do follow Jesus. So I would ask you here, are you still following Jesus? In the preceding 10 verses... Um, there's three things that I see that are really a test to the Christian about whether or not you're following Jesus. And I want to look at these three. 
If you say you're a Christian, your life should be marked by unbelievable joy and hope. And what do I mean by this? Think about the disciples on Saturday, right after Jesus was crucified. I mean, they, you want to talk about a dark night of the soul. They are in the thick of that night. Uh, Jesus has been crucified. They assume that the Romans are going to come find them and do the same thing to them. Their faces are plastered all over the city, I'm sure, at this point. Um, you know, they just Xerox some copies, put them out. But they're terrified. They're absolutely hopeless. Many of us know that feeling. We have that feeling of not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to leave the house, just utter despair. But with Sunday morning, with the resurrection of Jesus comes unbelievable hope. The disciples went from the most despair possible to the greatest hope imaginable. And so I'd say for the Christian, is your life marked by hope? The second thing I would say, and we see this in uh, chapter 1, verse 7, is Christian, if you're following Jesus, do you love his church? If you say you're a Christian, you cannot not love his church. Because to follow Jesus is to love his church. And there are a thousand ways to love his church. But you've got to ask yourself the question, do I truly Follow Jesus. And if I do, it means I love his church. Do you love his church? Lastly, I'll say this. If we say we are a Christian, we need to be really, really good at confessing our sin to each other and to God and being full of grace towards one another. So here's here's the deal. Easter Sunday should be the biggest reminder to all of us that we need the cross. See, I think sometimes we think Jesus came just to to show us how to be nice. But the reality is Jesus came because you needed him to die for you. And see, we do a really good job at, at, let's be honest, at pretending, don't we? I mean, we come to church and we, we iron our slacks and we blow dry our hair. I mean, you guys look good today. I mean, a lot of you look really good today. You got the vest and the tie and, and the dress and the makeup and the smiles. We paint on our smile. And we, pretend that, we pretend that everything's just okay. But if everything is okay, why the heck did Jesus have to die? See, as a Christian, we have to live our lives in such a way that says, you know what? I need the death of Jesus because my life is so wanton, my heart is so wanton, that it actually took Jesus coming to earth, dying for me. Not for all those other people out there. I'm sure he had to die for them. But he had to die for every one of you. Christian, do not pretend. Now for the searcher. Um, I want to say, our church is a safe place to search. That you're absolutely welcome here. You're welcome to have questions. You're, you're welcome to doubt. You're even welcome to completely disagree. But what I would encourage you to do is to keep searching. The prophet Jeremiah tells a group of foreigners in, an, in a distant exiled land, he says this, he says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Jesus himself says this in Luke 11, He says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Keep searching. So in closing, I want to say this. I want to say I absolutely believe that it is reasonable to believe that there is one true God. I think it's reasonable to understand that we all are searching, that we all believe in a God or a set of beliefs that kind of dictate our lives. Ultimately, if that set of beliefs is based on your own understanding, as John says, it's going to fail you. So ultimately, are you following Jesus? Do you love his church? Is your, marked, is your life marked by unbelievable joy? Is your life marked by perpetually telling your friends and your wife and your kids and your church workers and your church friends, you know what? I'm, I'm messed up. Thank God for the cross. No one of us in here has any like moral high ground on anyone else. We've got Jesus and then we've got the rest of us. There's, there's no in between there. I hope today that that gives you unbelievable hope. It certainly does for me. Would you pray with me? Jesus, um, our lives are face to face right now with asking the question, are you God? Lord, if you rose from the dead, it's, it's over. There, there's no debate. You are God. And if you're God, Lord, the best possible life is a life following you. And so I pray that this morning as we're face to face with that, Lord, that we would give our lives to following you. Lord, if we're wondering, do I know God or not? Lord, I pray that we would take an honest, hard look at how we're trying to figure out truth in our lives. And if we're just trying to make it up for whatever we want it to be, Lord, I pray that you would show us the folly of that this morning. And that we would base our lives built on the testimony and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I pray that our, our lives are marked by an unbelievable humility. A humility that says, you are God, I am not, and that you love me enough to come to earth and die for me. And Jesus, we love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen.